Welcome to Helpin' Horror Stories. Now welcome your host, Jenny Polly, and his lovely wife Tracy. I hear she's a lovely girl. <laughs> This is Amanda from Massachusetts, and you're listening to the Hillbilly Horror Stories. Do come in. Someone has killed father. Well, first of all, uh, that little girl's math is wrong because she only used 19 hits to the mom and only 11 to the dad. So they don't even equal up to 40. Well, I don't know, but she just is creepy to me. I can't even stand it. I'm going to have that song on my dang head all night. (laughs) So anyway, this is uh, episode 35, Hillbilly Horror Stories. My uh, name is Jerry. I had to think about it. That's how long of a day it's been. And uh, I'm joined by my lovely co-host, Tracy. Hey, guys. How are you? And spoiler alert... It's cold as a biatch here. Yeah. That has nothing Sorry. to do with what I was saying, though. But 70 degrees yesterday, and literally, it's 42 today, and it sucks balls. So, so you, okay. So, do you think the people tuned in to listen to us instead of the weather channel? I know. I just felt like saying it. It's been irking me all day. So, anyways, uh, what I was starting to say before I was so rudely interrupted is, spoiler alert, uh, two people <laughs> get killed. So Oh, <laughs> But Way to end the story there, babe, I think, everybody. I think, I think most people probably already know that. So okay. let's jump right into this because this actually is a fascinating story. And we started off with a little intro from Amanda DeGrasse. And she's from Massachusetts. And she's the one that actually suggested that we do this story a while back. And I, right after about the time that she suggested, like the very next day, uh, I had an actress by the name of Chanel Ryan reach out to me and tell us that she liked the show. And yeah. she had mentioned that she spent the night, oddly enough, at the Lizzie Borden house. So I thought, well, I got two people telling me this, and, and uh, Chanel had agreed at that time to come on as a guest. So I thought, well, we need to set this up and, and get into it. And the more I got into it, the more actually fascinating this story is. And I think I probably took more pages of notes on this one than any show we've done, if that tells you anything. Yeah, so she's brave for staying in that house, I think. So let's talk a little bit about that. As we get to the at the end of the uh, the story that we're going to tell, we actually have an interview with her, Chanel Ryan. She was voted uh, sexiest woman in the world by Maxim Magazine. She's been on the Howard Stern Show. She's been on the Late Late Show with James Corden. Uh, several movies, too many to even mention right now, but we talk about it in our interview. And she's an absolute sweetheart. And anybody who is a um, famous actress that actually likes our show is definitely knows the way to our heart and how to get onto the show. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. She is really very sweet. And I appreciate her giving us her time because I know she's very, very busy. Yep. She's, she's definitely busy. That's for sure. So let's jump into the actual story of Lizzie Borden. And oddly enough, we're not really going to talk about the ghost in the house. We'll do that with Chanel. Uh, but as far as what we're going to do, we're just going to talk about the crime itself and the trial and um, we'll let Chanel talk about some of the ghosts that, that went on uh, or their experiences with ghosts that she had uh, at that night when she spent the night. So let's go to August 4th, 1892, Fall River, Massachusetts. 
The house was at 92 2nd Street. 72-year-old Andrew Borden and 65-year-old Abby Borden lived there with their daughter, Emma, who was uh, 41, and with Lizzie, who was 32 years old at the time. Now, Andrew Borden was worth a lot of money. They estimate anywhere from two hundred fifty to five hundred thousand dollars, which in eighteen ninety two was worth about nine million dollars today. So he had a lot of money. Wow, that is a lot for back then. But he also had a lot of enemies, and part of the reason is how he came about his money. He made a lot of his money off of uh, investing in textiles and banks. He actually owned a couple of banks, was a couple of chairmen of some banks, but he was also an undertaker, and he would take mortgages out on people's houses when they would pay for funerals, and then if they didn't uh, pay for the funeral, then he would take their homes. What a dick. Yeah, so he uh, he didn't have a lot of friends in the neighborhood. Well, I guess not. He was also a tightwad. He was extremely tight with his money. He lived in town in this little very modest house, uh, which really pissed Lizzie and her sister off because all of the real rich people in town lived up on the hill. Mm-hmm. That's where That was like where the established uh, place was right. and they wanted to live there he didn't he wanted to live right there amongst all the factories and mm-hmm. and the business district and uh, you could see how that that kind of could have been a problem and lizzie made it clear abundantly clear to him that she did not like living there yeah which i don't really understand how even at this day and age you've got a 41 year old daughter and a 32 year old daughter well, living yeah, why with are you, you living at home anyway get yeah. on out the house so that's that's kind of the background on, on who they are. So what happened was on, on August 4th, 1892, there's going to be a thousand different stories as to what happened. But Lizzie screamed that somebody had killed her dad. And everything kind of took place from that point. So that's that's the one thing that people know for sure happened. After that, it's up to anybody's guess as to what happened. So you keep in mind that... that Emma, the 41-year-old, she didn't like living there either, but she also couldn't stand Abby, the stepmom. Uh, Abby was Andrew's second wife. She she married Andrew when Abby was 14. Lizzie was three at the time. So Lizzie really didn't know any different. Abby did know. Uh, you know, it was the classic, you're not my mom syndrome. Yeah, plus her sister was so much older than her, so they really didn't even have... Uh, well, I guess couldn't get a close bond because of their age difference. Well, they actually did have a pretty close bond. Oh, they did? Yeah, oh. yeah, they actually did have a close bond. But, you know, Abby Abby was the kind of person that she was like a sweetheart. Most people would tell you that she was a great, you know, person, a big-hearted woman that would do anything for anybody. Mm-hmm. And But, unfortunately, she had two people that hated her, and both of them lived at that house as her stepdaughters. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> so the only friend that Abby really had in the house was the maid, Bridget Sullivan. Okay. Uh, Bridget worked for him for, I believe it was three years, so she had been there for the whole time. And on the morning of August 4th, Bridget fixed breakfast for everybody. This, this is what we do know. She fixed breakfast for everybody in the household. Uh, the people who sat down to breakfast was... Abby and uh, Andrew, but they also had a visitor who had spent the night the night before, and his name was John Morse. Now, John Morse was Andrew's brother-in-law. He was the brother of his first wife, Sarah. Oh, okay. Okay, so he had came and spent the night. There's a lot of um, confusion as to why he really came in or what kind of connections there were. There's obviously some kind of meeting that took place. Mm -hmm. Now, John Morse left at around 845 to visit a relative across the street. Andrew left at around 10 a.m. to go down and get a haircut and a shave. Now, he stopped by the bank and a few businesses to collect some rent along the way. This is how they were able to police the 
establish a timeline on when all this stuff happened. Okay. Now, Bridget the maid was told by Abby sometime during this to go clean the downstairs windows inside and out. Okay. Now, that comes into play a little bit later. Now, Lizzie had come downstairs after the other people had had already eaten, and and, uh, she was eating, you know, a little bit of breakfast. She was reading a magazine, and she said at approximately 9 a.m., someone knocked on the door and gave Abby a message that someone was sick, and she told Lizzie that she was going to go out, and while she was out, she would pick up dinner. Okay. So keep in mind, it was around 9 o'clock. 10.45, Andrew Borden returned home. Bridget, the maid, let him in. I almost said Bridget the Midget. <laughs> That's a porn star. Oh. Um, <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so uh, Bridget let him in. He went to the sitting room, and Bridget went upstairs around 11 o'clock. So what we've got now is we've got Abby Borden leaving the house supposedly at 9 a.m., or that's what, according to Lizzie. And then the father came back, Andrew, at 1045, and then went to the sitting room, and Bridget went upstairs at 11. So now there's nobody down there with him. At the time, Lizzie supposedly was in the barn looking for some lead to make a sinker. I don't know what for. Well, some people say she was to make a sinker. Some people said she was looking for an iron for a screen, which... This is all stuff that I guess it was relevant back then, but yeah. I don't know what she would be making lead for a sinker for unless she was going fishing or something. Yeah, yeah. That's, That's what I'm going fishing. So she said she heard a weird sound. She ran to the house. She found her father dead. He had received 11 blows to the head with a very sharp, heavy object. Oh, my God. That's horrible. Some of the blows cut his nose. One of them even cut his eye in half. Like his actual eyeball? His eyeball. Dr. Bowen, who at one time was a Civil War um, doctor, so he had seen a lot. Yeah. He came in to to look at the body, and he said he was sickened by the sight. Oh, my God. That's how bad it was. So he went into the kitchen where Lizzie was, and she was sitting, and she was being comforted by Alice Russell and Miss Churchill, who was a next-door neighbor. Now, Alice Russell, you'll find out later, is actually a really good friend to Lizzie. That's who she confided in all the time. Mm Mm-hmm. And like I said, Miss Churchill just happened to live next door. So Lizzie asked Bridget if she'd go upstairs to, to see if uh, Miss Borden was home. Bridget said she didn't want to go by herself, so Miss Churchill offered to go with her. They got to the seventh step, and they could look over to their left and see into the door, and they could see Abby laying on the floor. Mm. Now, Abby had received 19 blows. All but one hit her in the head, and the one that didn't hit her in the head hit her in the neck. Um, she died approximately 9.30 a.m., an hour and a half before Mr. Borden died. Oh, my God. Now, the, the first question is, is why is it such a violent crime? Was this just out of plain hatred? Or was this a planned attempt to make it look like that a maniac had kind of, you know, yeah. broke in and did it? And, you know, not that it was planned by any means. So keep in mind, back in... A little small town in the 1890s, the police weren't really um, accustomed to dealing with... With such... Yeah. Yeah, so the crime scene was not handled in a way. The crime scene made the OJ trial look like, you know, yeah. a, a, a thing of beauty compared to what this was. So they they had, didn't quarantine the place off or, or cordon the place off, and they had people coming in and taking souvenirs and, oh and, st- and stealing stuff that actually could have been evidence while the bodies were in the house still yeah what a bunch of sickos so 
There were several hatchets in the cellar. One had fresh had a freshly broken handle on it and had blood. So they, you know, said this must be the thing, even though it was never proven that that was the actual murder weapon. And there'll be a couple of reasons why we'll get into that. But witnesses saw Bridget the maid outside cleaning the windows. Yeah. The front and the back doors were locked, but someone could have gotten in through the cellar door because it was unlocked. So you got witnesses now that saw Bridget outside. So that kind of gives her an alibi. Mm Mm-hmm. Emma, the sister, was out of town during all this. So that Lucky left, her. Yeah, that left Lizzie in the house, so she became the main suspect. Why was Bridget locked out of the house? I mean, why were the doors locked if she was outside doing windows? I have no idea. Hmm. Okay, go ahead. Talk. Probably the same reason y'all keep the doors locked when you're inside and there's nothing going on outside. You never know. I ain't playing. All I know is I get stuck out in the rain a lot trying to search for my keys. <laughs> yeah, I know, but I ain't playing. So the officer that was in charge was named Officer Fleet, like um, Andy Griffith. Was it the the fleet and the band with the beat? Oh, or... yeah. <laughs> See, another Andy Griffith reference. <laughs> so the this Officer Fleet, he asked Lizzie about her mom, and Lizzie kind of went off a little bit and made it clear that she was not her mom. She was her stepmom, that her mom died when she was two, and Fleet took that as being indicative of her guilt. And that was one of the main reasons that they used to try to bring her to trial and make her a, a true suspect. Because well, yeah, I mean, that would be the last thing I would think that would pop out of my mouth uh, through all of that. That, that um, Excuse me, that's not my mom. <laughs> well, so here's, here's where the things start getting kind of tricky. There were four or five witnesses that say they saw a man in the Borden's yard right after the crime at around 11 a.m. Now, after police had Lizzie as a suspect... They weren't really interested in, in looking for any other suspects. Right. They were convinced that's who she had. And, you know, let's let's be honest. There was a panic in this small town thinking there was a murder on the loose. And it was a whole lot easier for them to calm the panic down mm-hmm. by them pretty much saying, oh, we've got somebody. And yeah. not only have we got somebody, but it was an inside deal. Yeah. So there's not some guy running around. And that's that I made people feel it. better. But let's go back to the man outside. At least four couples with nothing to gain saw a horse and buggy parked in front of the house from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. Okay. Dr. Handy, who was just a guy that just happened to be walking around, but he was a medical doctor, said he saw a very pale-faced man walking back and forth in front of the house. Very kind of eerily walking back and forth, Mm kind of pacing. Now, Lizzie said that a man had come to the house a few times and had had some arguments with her dad. And that he was supposed to be there earlier that day. Oh, so like a business dude, maybe. Right. Well, you'll find out. It's oh. it's a little more detailed okay. as we get into it. But the night before the murder, you know, Lizzie did Lizzie did a bunch of stuff that kind of implicated her and made her look bad. Uh, I don't know if she thought she was trying to make herself look good or or what her tie-in was. But the night before the murder, Lizzie told Alice Russell, that's the young lady that was her comforter, and I said she confided in that her father had an enemy that the house had been broken into and she feared that the milk might be poison. That's very specific. Well, yeah. And it, she even slept with one eye open cause she was afraid that the house would be burned down around her. So that would get tiresome. Yeah. Yeah. I would think so. <laughs> that sounds more like a, uh, uh, Metallica song. Oh yeah. yeah. 
But and please don't sing. Oh I Lord, just, I'm not gonna sing. I promise, guys. But but the day before the murder, Lizzie went into a pharmacy to buy prussic acid, supposedly to clean a sealskin cape. And this is like the second story with the prussic acid because if you remember when we did the Airedale, yeah, because the guy, I was just thinking, well, that sounds familiar. Yeah, the guy committed suicide. The the one guard from the from the hospital, yeah, committed suicide by drinking prussic acid, Duh. and so she. She said that's what she wanted to for was clean a sealskin cape. They denied her the uh, from getting it because she didn't have a prescription for it. Apparently, you had to have a prescription for it. When they asked her about it, the police asked her, she just flat up said, oh, I didn't go with her to buy any acid. Well, they had evidence oh, from testimony hell. that she did actually She's go She's not very that. good at this role. <laughs> so August 10th, 1892, before a warrant could be issued... In the state of Massachusetts, they had to do an inquest. Uh, an inquest basically was to determine whether there was actually a crime committed, and okay, that's who the likely committed. I, I, I understand the hell? that is the dumbest thing I ever heard. But it's also to try to make sure that the the person that they're it's not so much that there was a crime committed because there was a crime committed, but they're trying to make sure that this person they think this person committed a crime before they went with a, a warrant. So at the inquest. She was aggressively questioned, and her story kept changing. Uh, one point in time, she said that when her father came in, uh, she was outside, and I heard a noise, and then she came in and found her dead dad died. Her dad dead. <laughs> she found her dad dead. <laughs> she was just nervous. Well, but then, <laughs> then she said at one point in time that she was upstairs when it happened, when her father when her father came in came yeah. into the house yeah. she was upstairs and then she said that she was in the kitchen ironing some uh sheets like i don't okay. know who the hell irons sheets who the hell irons oh, whatever go ahead sorry well clans people probably do oh gosh you want to look good when you go out in public with your dress whites oh that's not good that's terrible that she <laughs> i don't know she does not make no sense because number 1 if she was Upstairs, when the dad was downstairs getting murdered, well, her apparently her mom was already dead, wasn't she? She yes. didn't see her body laying there? Yes, not. But she said, and then she said at one point in time she was on the steps. One of the things that she said was that um, when her dad came in, she came down there and took his boots off and put his slippers on. But in the crime scene photo, he's still got his boots on. Oh, he does. Yeah, so... Oh. You know, it's it, like I said, it just kept changing, it kept changing, and they had pictures of that, so. Yeah. But the most damning testimony came from Alice Russell, who was her, her friend. Because Alice said two days after it had red paint on it and put it in the stove and burned it. Oh, wow. Red paint. Yeah, come on, girl. <laughs> so that was enough to have her arrested. So she spent nine months in jail. And then a month in jail during the trial. But her trial started June 5th, 1893. Press flooded from all over the place. This really was equivalent to the OJ file mm -hmm. or, or um, OJ uh, trial. They had people from all over the world mm -hmm. coming in to do press on this thing. She had three defense attorneys, obviously the best money could buy of because course. they had money. The prosecution focused on Lizzie's inconsistent statements and that the uh, prussic acid but both of those were excluded from the trial. Why? Well, mainly because, well, the, first of all, the, on, on the uh, inconsistent statements, because her attorney wasn't there during the inquisition yeah. or the uh, the inquest. Yeah. So they said 
since he wasn't there to be able to answer, ask questions on her behalf, that they couldn't use that. And then the prussic acid, this is going to sound extremely stupid. The prussic acid, because they said it was a different way of killing entirely, that would have been poisoning, and it was, this was done with an axe. And because, because of the fact that it was a different style of, of or method of killing, and because it wasn't relevant because it was the day before, not the day of the murders. That's why they threw that out. I think I think those judges may have been the same officials from the Kentucky North Carolina game. Uh-huh. That's what yeah, I think. Well, I think we need to. Yeah, <laughs> I think we should investigate that. Now, the other funny thing that goes in with this whole um, prussic acid thing is they also did, and this is kind of a, a, a neat thing to, to find out. They also did an autopsy on their stomachs, and they couldn't find any poison. And the, the odd thing about this is, and, and Chanel mentions this a little bit, the autopsies were done on the kitchen table in the dining room. <laughs> oh, nice. So that's that's where they did it at. Uh-huh. Um, the other interesting thing that come out of this, they cut the heads off of Abby and Andrew Borden. Why? Because they brought the skulls to the trial so they could show the damage oh, to the skulls. My God. And then after the trial, they actually buried, this is kind of ironic, they actually buried the heads at the foot of the grave. Okay, I have a question, and it's probably going to sound really stupid. So, was there anything on the skull? Did they take the meat off? Yeah, all the meat was gone. It was just a skull. Oh. My guess, they probably H.H. Holmesed it and put some put it in some acid or something. And oh, my gosh. So they actually had these, but they were showing this, and 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 they could use the hatchet that they had. Yeah, gotten. I mean, I guess I can see that. And see, that was the other thing. Like when the police first came there, they didn't even take any of the hatchets. They noticed there were hatchets, and they didn't take any they of them, as it. thinking it was a murder. Well, they went back later and got the, the okay, hatchet. Well, that what had a bunch of dumb butts! But why did they put the head at the foot? Oh wait a minute, what did you say? That's what they said. They put the heads. They buried the heads at the foot of the grave. I thought that was ironic. <laughs> I don't know. That sounds pretty messed up back in those days. I don't know about that. All right. So let's get back to the trial. The dress burning. How do you get out of that? Well, she had two witnesses that said that there was paint on a dress, that they had seen paint on a dress. Now, while all of a sudden she decided that two days later and, and it needed to be burned, who knows? Yeah, she didn't make very good decisions for sure. And like I said, the whole prussic acid deal, we know the jury was all men. And now that comes into play because you're sitting looking at an attractive woman, killed her her dad and her stepmom, and you got a jury of 12 men who basically couldn't imagine their daughter doing such a thing. And then the blood-stained axe was supposedly cow's blood on it, is what they said. So they test it? Somehow, some way. Somehow they knew it was cow's blood. So she was acquitted of all charges for lack of evidence. Oh, my I mean, they really didn't have any real proof tying her to it. It's ten months she spent in jail, and now she's free. And But people, <laughs> people are um, very hateful. And just like OJ gets treated today... Mm-hmm. She was treated the same way. I mean, little kids would sit outside of her door and sing that song. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was a game to them, and that's kind of how she was known. Now, several people from all over the world would send in letters 
to the city basically saying, hey, if you pay us the money and hire us, we'll come solve this crime. But the most interesting letter, it came from a man claiming to be Andrew Borden's illegitimate son. Now, I think this is the most interesting of all of it, but you're going to see how many twists and turns this thing takes. According to the letter, William Borden said that he wanted recognition from his father and he demanded $5,000, to which Andrew refused. He also said that the Bordens were not killed by any members of the immediate family members because he did it. That's what it said in this letter. What? Yep. Now, according to author Arnold Brown, Abby Borden couldn't stand the fact that there was an illegitimate son out there, and it caused all kinds of animosity between William, which was the, the illegitimate son, her and Andrew. Now, he also said that William uh, had scheduled a meeting with Andrew the day of the murders, which is the same thing Lizzie said. Now, that Bre- wasn't that white pasty guy, was it? It's very possible because he fits the description, but he also fits the description of somebody else, which we'll get into. Oh. Uh, but Brown said that he believes that Lizzie had a hand in the murders and that Lizzie told him that the cellar door would be unlocked. Because remember, we covered that the doors yeah. were locked, but the cellar was unlocked. Now, the only safe room in the whole house during this time would have been Lizzie's room, which, guess where Lizzie was when supposedly this happened? Upstairs. Now, he came in, came in up the steps. This is what, the, what uh, this author, Brown, seems to think happened. So he thinks he came up the steps. He killed Miss, Miss Borden. And then when Andrew came home, he killed him as well and took Andrew's will with him. Well, why would he take a will with him? That's kind of an odd thing. Mm-hmm. Well... Lizzie knew that her father was leaving the bulk of her uh, future and fortune to Abby, and she was kind of pissed off about that, that she was going to be getting nothing. You got a 32-year-old woman with no job, no husband, living at home. What's going to happen if her father, who was already 72 years old, dies? Abby gets everything, Everything. and then she's kind of out. And, uh, you know, with, with both of her parents dead and no will, her and her sister would inherit everything. So, you know, now Brown bases this on a very interesting account by Henry Hawthorne. Now, Henry Hawthorne actually wrote a diary, and these things were discovered at a later time. But a few years after the murders, Henry says that he went to work for a farmer. He was a little boy at the time, like 10, 11 years old. Mm -hmm. He went to work for a farmer by the name of William Borden. And he said that he later, as he got older, he married the daughter of, of Ella Egan, and Ella Egan was a witness in this case. Okay. So of of the whole uh, Lizzie Borden case. Now, in a detailed conversation he had with his mother-in-law, which was uh, Ellen Egan's mother, she said that she had mentioned that she was scared of someone come by, by someone coming on the outside door. So she was walking by the the house that day of the murders, and somebody came out the side door and scared her. And he was carrying a, a large cloth bag. Mm-hmm. And keep in mind, that's kind of what people were saying, that they saw the guy out there, all right. these witnesses saying they saw somebody out there. So that reminded Henry of the fact that when he worked for, for William a long time before, that he would talk to his hatchet. Like, like he would be chopping wood and stuff, and he would just stop and have conversations with his hatchet. Like Tom Hanks and Wilson? Pretty much. Pretty much. And the other thing is, oddly enough, he carried that hatchet everywhere he went in a cloth bag. Oh, my gosh. So 
he recalled one conversation that, that he overheard. He heard that William Borden talking to his hatchet say, you know, my father and that fat Sal he was married when they, he should have married my mother. Of course, you know them. You were there when they died. Now, this is this is what the little boy wrote in the diary years later. Now, William Borden died in 1901, so not too, too long after all this took place. Yeah. Now, we got different accounts. Historian George Quigley, he thinks that someone was hired to kill Abby and Andrew. He believed that Lizzie, Emma, and John Morris, you remember John Morris, that was the uncle. He believes that John found out that there was a will. And that he was somehow affected by the will, and he believed that the girls acted, or they actually asked John if uh, they could get rid of Abby. And John hired a guy named William Davis to kill Abby. Now, William Davis was a guy who used to chop wood. His dad was a butcher, and they, so they, you know, and Andrew owned um, some, what do you call it, slaughterhouses. Oh, God. And this guy, this guy was a butcher. And his dad was a butcher, and he was he worked for his dad there. So he knew the family very well. Yeah. So it wouldn't have been odd for him to come into the house. Okay. And most people found that John Morse was very suspicious to begin with. First of all, he couldn't remember what they had for breakfast that morning when he was questioned. But somehow, some way, he knew the name of the trolley car. He knew the conductor's name and the name of six Irish priests that he was traveling to on the way to uh, St. Mary's Church. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of too perfect. He had a perfect alibi. It right. was way too planned out. Yeah. So normally on a on a on a day of uh, that the murders happen, a farmer from Swansea would bring eggs to the house. But for some reason, Morse went to him and picked up the eggs. Yeah. Oh. And saved him a trip. That's what he told him. I'm saving you a trip. But he told the family that he went there because the farmer was sick and he couldn't make it out to the house. But how would John Morse know that the farmer was sick. Yeah. He just randomly went out there and or just had a feeling or, you know, so that's kind of the first thing. So Quigley also thinks that William Davis strangled Abby and then he went downstairs because Andrew came home early. He strangled him too and then mutilated both of the bodies so it would look like, you know, they wanted it to be natural causes, but they were afraid that if he, you could see they were strangled, it would be, you know, construed as something else. So they decided to just butcher it, just make it look like a complete catastrophe. Ugh, I cannot imagine somebody sitting there and just repeatedly hitting somebody in the head with a sharp axe. Ugh. Now, you also got witnesses that said that there was a man standing in the North Yard shortly after the murders, and he leaned slightly to the left. Now... That could mean some type of an affliction or something like that. And if you look at William Davis, who died in 1900, the cause of death was a tumor to his neck and brain, which could have caused him to be off balance and lean mm-hmm. to the left. So now you got two different people that we're seeing out there that could be two totally different people. Witnesses saw two different guys out there, apparently. So now the Sunday after the murder, John Morse went to the post office and he was seen by a police officer. So he went in after him. And what John was doing was he had mailed a letter to William Davis. And it said, without without haste at the bottom of the letter, which basically means, you know, hurry up and get hurry this to him. Yeah, yeah. And they assumed that probably what happens, he probably paid William Davis half of the money to do the killings. And he was sending the other half after they were done. Now, some believe there was more than one murderer. And there's lots of inside help. 
That's kind of the, the direction that people went. Pamela Raskin, who's an historian, she believes that John Morse killed Abby, Abby before he ever left the house, you know, with his fantastic alibi, and then someone else came in and killed Andrew. Some think that Bridget, the maid, could have actually done it. Now, but, she was out washing well, windows. Well, they were, she was out washing windows, but she also had access to water so she could clean up and everything. So, I mean, I'm just saying she could have cleaned herself up and, and been out there. She could have committed the murder and then been outside. Nobody knows when she was outside, no, if that was before or after. I don't buy that. But, That's too much blood and guts to... Well, the other the other story that involves her was the fact that, uh, you know, it was hot outside, supposedly, and she, was, she didn't feel good that day, and she was told to clean the windows inside and out when she didn't feel good, and she could just taking the abuse out on Abby. Okay. So that's just one of the many number, different things. Number one, I just don't believe that because, like I said, at, that was a heck of a lot of swinging of an axe. And the last dang thing you want to do is go clean windows. You're exhausted. You're <laughs> tired. Your arms are tired. You don't feel like scrubbing the windows. So I don't think Bridget did it. True story. True story. Lynn Rabello, he's a historian. He thinks that Bridget knew what was going on, but she didn't contribute in any way, shape, or form. There's another kind of um, inferred but not straight out said that incest could have played a part in this. It was strongly hinted that John John Morse and Andrew Borden were also uh, having incestual affairs with Abby. I mean, not Abby, I'm sorry, with uh, Lizzie. So could it have been a situation where she just had enough. Cracked and just decided, you know, because you see sometimes these people just, they, they go into a state where they just don't even know what they're doing. They're just Why don't you blank just cut out. Her, his wiener off? I have no idea. I'm sure you would have been really helpful during this inquest. <laughs> <laughs> now, one of the other things that came up is Miss Churchill. We remember her. She's the one that went upstairs. Yes. And now she made a comment at the trial that she said she saw something in that house that morning. That she would never repeat, even if they cut her tongue out. Oh my Which gosh. makes sense if they cut her tongue out. You definitely well, you can can't never repeat say. it. I so. wonder what it was. I don't know. She never told anybody. Took it to her grave. Lizzie and her sister, after all this was done, they sold the house. <laughs> and they moved, guess where? On the hill. Uh, up on the hill. And Lizzie had the uh, the house named Maple Grove. That's what she named it. Now, there's a Evan Hunter. He's a crime story writer. He was talking about that over the mantle, uh, she had carved something that said, at home in my own country. And he took that as, when you read the, that came from an Irish poem. Mm -hmm. And when you, uh, a Scottish poem, I'm sorry. And when you read that whole poem out, it almost leads you to believe that for her to take that saying, it basically means you're just, you're, Finally at home. You feel at home. Yeah. And he thinks that it's very possible that she was harboring a dark secret. And that dark secret was that she was a lesbian. <laughs> well, I know you laugh, but oh. here's some other stuff. As he starts digging into it, here's what he found out. I at, did not you know you were going in that direction whatsoever. Yeah. At the turn of a century... A man brought charges against his wife for lesbianism, and he listed Lizzie as a co-respondent. Maybe that's case. why her name is that. Well, Lizzie Lizzie. Actually, that's, you will hear sometimes people as negative slang that we would never use. They will call lesbians sometimes lesbies. Sometimes they'll call them Lizzie's. 
Oh, I didn't know that. And Lizzie's is where this came from. Oh. So he had listed her as that, and it was dismissed because the judge said it was a frivolous. June 3rd, 1905, there was an, a, a, I guess you could say she was an actress, but she was kind of uh, in a lot of musicals. Her name was Nance O'Neill. And she was a, a good friend of, of uh, Lizzie's, and she came to a party. Mm-hmm. Well, for whatever reason, I told you her and Emma were together for a long time. You got to keep in mind, this was, you know, almost 10 years after the trial. Her mm-hmm. and her sister are still living together. Her sister left and never saw Lizzie again. She consulted a reverend. She told the reverend that she had seen things that she could, did not feel comfortable discussing. And the reverend said, based on what she told him, that she should just not be a part of it because it wasn't the kind of things good Christians should be around. What, Lizzie's sister said that? That's what Lizzie's sister said. So Lizzie's sister's left. Where'd she go? I don't know. Oh. You ask a lot of questions that really aren't pertinent to the case. Oh. <laughs> I know, I just wonder. Do you want to know what color dress Lizzie no, burned or any no, of that? No, Maybe there. what kind of axe was it, you know, did it come from Harbor Freight or was it something from Lowe's or anything <laughs> else you'd like to know? No, I just wonder where she went. So <laughs> the sister moves out. And the main reason was supposedly she was having an affair with this Nance O'Neill. So what does all this have to do with a crime that was committed 13 years before that? Well, some believe that, you know, the Bordens lived in a very cramped up house. They, they were, there was a bunch of them living in a house. You had the maid, you had Mr. and Miss Borden, two, two of the daughters. They're always running into each other, running over top of each other, passing each other on the stairs. It was very cramped. And, you know, the day of the murders, you had supposedly Emma's out of town. So you got Andrew or the mom, uh, Abby, had left to go do something. It wasn't going to be back for a while. And then you got Andrew left and he wasn't going to be back for a while. So a lot of people tend to assume that the maid and Lizzie actually were having relations. And maybe... What had happened was, you know, it was a hot day. Abby had left, maybe realized that her dress was a little too hot, came back to change her clothes, and she caught the girls in bed together. She obviously, this being that time period, would have probably went off and called her every name in the book. And, you know, it's, this is unacceptable and this is ungodlike and all this, mm-hmm. which would have caused her to then probably kill Abby. Now, they think if this happened... There was a situation with a candlestick to where Mr. Mustard and the <laughs> No, no, seriously. There was a situation where they, they there was a candlestick that was out of place downstairs that Mr. Borden had mentioned. And they think what could have happened was she got pissed off at Abby. As soon as Abby turned, she grabbed the candlestick, hit her in the head, probably killed her, rushed downstairs, she put the candlestick where it didn't belong. And it was laying like downstairs. Well, when Mr. Borden comes home, he's like, well, the candlestick, what's this candlestick doing here? And they're like, don't worry about it. It's, you know, we'll take it back upstairs. And he's like, no, I'll take it upstairs. And then as he went to go upstairs, she just took care of him too. Um, I don't know about this whole damn story. It's been all over the place. That's what I'm saying. It's, it's all over the place. And so that's kind of that's kind of the story. Nobody really knows what happened. Nobody ever followed up on it. I would hate to either garner a guess as to what happened, but if I, I got a feeling probably everybody was tied into this one way, shape or form. But I think, I think Lizzie probably did know 
that, you know, she wasn't going to be getting any fortune. Um, I think that that William Borden, the illegitimate son, probably did show up. There was too many people who sent him outside with his bag, and he was talking to his ex, so he was a nut job to begin with. And that's my guess. That's what I think probably happened. Mm-hmm. I think they probably orchestrated the whole thing, and her uncle was probably in on it too. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they all split the money and moved on the hill, and it is just, what it is. I don't know. I think, I mean, of course, any murder is terrible, but with this being as horrific as it was to play out like it did, I, I just – that's mind-boggling to me. And she ended up when she ended up dying. She left a lot of money to charities, mm-hmm. and she even left an endowment to constantly keep taking care of her father's grave for years. Oh, well, I mean, that, after she was gone, that's so that's cool. I mean, I guess. I guess. <laughs> well, that's pretty cool, I guess. Uh huh. I don't so. know. That's this. That's that is the most bizarre thing ever. So anyway, that is our story on Lizzie Borden. So you can make your own decision, and you'll be probably just as right as anybody else, since yeah. nobody seems to know a hundred years later. That was what a the happy hell happened. story, babe. I'm all about happiness. That's I what I do. I like to spread cheer. I know. Hey, ask me a question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Okay. So <laughs> now we're going to get a chance for you guys to listen to the interview with Chanel. And uh, hopefully you enjoy her. This young lady, I'm telling you, I, I can't express enough how happy we were. Because she is actually a bona fide star. And she basically just approached us and said, hey, I love the show. Which you'll hear her say a couple of times during the interview. And like I said, I didn't I didn't have to go through publishers or press uh, agents or anything to talk to her. She reached out to us, and we greatly appreciate that. Yes, so, we do. Very much so. So take a listen, and we'll be back in just a second. All right, guys. Welcome back to Hillbilly Horror Stories. And Tracy and I are joined by probably one of the most versatile actresses that you're ever going to uh, come across on the silver screen and uh, probably magazines and calendars. And, and you'll see what I'm talking about as we get into this interview. Please welcome Miss Chanel Ryan. Chanel, thank you for coming on board. Thank you for having me. I'm psyched to be here. I, um, I Your show is great, and as we've discussed, I'm a huge fan of the paranormal. So, yay! Well, let's talk a little bit about you to get started, and then we'll tell everybody why you're going to be here. I mentioned that you were versatile, and and the reason I say that is because you are not only fantastic in comedic roles, but especially here in the last several years, you have really made a big splash in the horror genre, which I know a lot of our fans are going to be into. Can you tell us a little bit about what you like as far as being an actress? Do you prefer comedy? Do you prefer horror? Do you like everybody the same? Just, just kind of give me an, uh, some insight. Um, you know, comedy is my first love, but horror is so much fun to make. And within the horror genre, I really get offered all these amazing roles. And, you know, as an actress, I'm a little bit more, I'm nowhere near where I want to be, but I'm, you know, a little bit more established in the indie horror scene, specifically in the horror genre. And, you know, when you're starting out, you you take what's offered to you. And you, you know, you you make the best of it. And so, you know, there's so many horror films made because the fans are just insatiable. So I just kept booking a lot of horror films. And... You know, some of them really took off, and others developed cult followings. And here I am talking to you. Um, yeah, you, you know, um, within the horror genre, just the the type of roles that I get offered and the type of characters I get to play are so much fun. 
And they just, you know, you're living in these crazy, high-stress situations and going through things that you probably are not going to go through in other types of films. So for, for that reason, I, I love the horror genre. And not to mention, the fans for the horror genre are the absolute best. Yeah, they can be kind of uh, uh, manic, I would say. We're, we're actually getting ready to set up later this year at Scarefest in Lexington. It's kind of like Comic-Con, but for uh, oh, cool. horror freaks. And, and, you know, we've been there the last couple of years, not set up, but this will be our first year setting up, but we've been there as fans. And it's just amazing how many people, over 15,000 people oh, yeah, will pack through always there. always packed. Well, my first experience, real, that's not true. I've done appearances at Chiller Theater before. Which is, for the East Coast, Chiller Theater is definitely the largest, like, horror autograph convention type thing. And, you know, there's some pop culture thrown in there, but it's predominantly horror. And then, for the Midwest, it's Texas Frightmare. And my first really big experience um, with the horror fans, I had a film called Circus of the Dead. And we premiered it at Texas Frightmare. Was it... I want to say it was two Mays ago, so just about almost two years ago. And I didn't really know what to expect. I, I've done a lot of these different appearances at different conventions, and the fans were always nice. But within the horror genre, you would expect the fans would maybe be a little bit weird. They are the nicest, warmest people. They are so supportive. They just, it was really great to be really embraced by a genre. And I was just blown away by just the great reception that we got. And we premiered Circus of the Dead there. And so it screened on Friday night and then again Saturday night. And I'm telling you, the theater was slammed. People were sitting, all the seats were filled. People were sitting on the floor in the front of the theater, standing up along the walls, sitting in the aisles. People were, you know, pouring out of the theater. Everyone was chanting, we want the clowns. Um... It was pretty cool, gotta say. Well, that sounds. I mean, I mean, what a good way to promote your movie there. I mean, that can have been, you know, that's just great, and having all those fans show up like that, and man, that's. Well, I feel like for for people who are in an indie horror film, mm-hmm. I mean, what a great way to market and get publicity for your film by having it at one of these really high profile conventions yeah. where. You know, the, the websites alone get a ton of traffic. All the fans go through the site. There's tons of press there. So it's really a great venue to premiere your film. Mm-hmm. Well, good for you all. That's amazing. And we definitely know how big Texas is when it comes to this because Texas yeah. is our biggest state. Uh, oh yeah. Even though we're sure. even though we're from here, when we look at the with the, every time we look at the ratings of the show, four of the top ten cities are almost always in Texas. Mm-hmm. Well, I feel like the, the biggest. I mean, it sounds like you guys are saying the same thing, too. The biggest, um, what's the word, concentration of, I think, horror filmmakers that I'm aware of, as well, at least in the indie scene, as well as fans, are definitely in Texas. I agree with that. Well, we talked, we've got a good friend um, by the name of Katie Stewart from louisville and she actually she's into the indie horror scene she's uh, she was actually in a movie with uh, a mutual friend of, of yours uh, al snow uh overtime oh, yeah. and and you know so i've got to see kind of her take on, on how this this indie uh horror films have been taken off lately so it's kind of cool to meet somebody else that that's made a splash 
Um, can we talk about a couple of other movies you were in? Uh, sure. t- touch on a little bit about uh, Haunting of Alice and Bad Kids Go to Hell. Uh, the Haunting of Alice D. It's funny. Um, Al was in that as well. I did two films with Al, with Al Snow. Um, Dorothy and the Witches of Oz and then The Haunting of Alice D. I am friends with um, Jess or Jessica Sonnenborn. She is the writer, director, and one of the producers as well as the actress in Alice D. And um, I came on board the project when they were basically already cast and I want to say it was a couple weeks before they were filming, and we were talking, and I was just really impressed by what, what she had put together, and she said, hey, you know, do you want to come out and play Kane Hodder's evil sidekick? And I was like, sure. And so um, it filmed in Rhode Island, and the, the whole thing takes place in this amazing, huge Victorian mansion right on the beach in Rhode Island. Oh, wow. Yeah, so they were able, Jess really does things, she really, it's impressive what she's able to do with a small budget, like she really knows how to successfully maximize funds and make the best movie possible on the least amount of money. So they housed basically the whole crew in the house, and you know, I could have stayed in a hotel or in the house, I'm like, I want to stay in the house, and um just the sense of being there was really cool. Um, and it snowed, which was also amazing. I haven't seen snow. I'm originally from the East Coast, but I haven't seen snow on the beach since I was little. So it was really, I woke up, I think, the second day of filming, and there was, I was in the second story room, or third story, second story. And I look out the window, and on the roof there's snow, and the whole beach is covered in snow. It was pretty oh cool, gosh. I would say. I don't think yeah. I've ever seen that ever. <laughs> it, was, it was really amazing. Oh my gosh! And then, um, what else did you ask? Bad me kids about? go to hell. So bad kids go to hell. It's interesting. I met the so it's originally based on a best-selling uh, comic book or graphic novel, and the writers are Matthew Spradlin and uh, Baza or Barry Warnick, and I originally met them. I was doing an appearance in Toronto at Wizard World, which is another one of these uh, autograph conventions. And they came up to me, and I remember Baza said, he was, you know, screaming from, like, across the showroom floor, you're Miss Gleason! And I was like, (laughs) okay, crazy. I'm like, I don't don't know who Miss Gleason is, but sure. And so they, they came up and were talking to me, and they basically said, you know, we've written this comic book, and we're getting ready to do a film based on the comic book. And we have a character. She's the cheerleading coach slash history teacher. And her name is Miss Gleason. And you look just like what we envisioned from her. And, you know, we're, we're interested in having you play her. And I was like, oh, cool. And um, long story short, we hung out a little bit in Canada. I was actually hosting a club. And they came out. And we had a really good time. And then they, we kept in touch by email. And I want to say, was it? Six months later or so, I got an email basically saying, hey, we're moving forward with this. We're in the casting stages. You know, we're interested in you for this role. Can you put it on tape so we can see your take on it? And I was like, absolutely. And uh, long story short, I put it on tape. tape, And it was pretty cool because within like a couple minutes, the casting person got back to me. uh, 
one of the producers got back to me and the director, and they were always like, that, you know, that was amazing. And obviously I got the role because, you know, yeah. here I am. Wow, that's, and, that's so cool. Yeah. I don't know what else to tell you. We, we filmed it in Texas, in Dallas and Austin. And it seems like every time I film in Texas, they want to wait till like, late late June, early July, or August when it's really hot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I just remember uh, – that was my first experience, really, with the, the summer heat in Texas. And it was one of those things where you get out of the car to the location, and it's like, ooh, oh, yeah, just well, uh, like, yes, like the 110 degree heat and the humidity. <laughs> and then as soon as you get inside the air conditioning, it's just freezing. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that was a lot of fun to film and um, such a great character. So I'm really thankful to have been part of that. Okay. And that has a really nice fan base as well. People seem to, to seem to really like that film. Well, we can't talk about that without parlaying into another cheerleading question. Because yeah. I may be one of the few people out there that absolutely love the movie Basketball. Uh, it's an oldie but a goodie. But I, mm-hmm. I'm, you know, Parker and Stone, who do South Park, for those of you unfamiliar with the movie, it's, I mean, that has to be almost 20 years ago. And, yeah. um, Back when South Park was really big, they came out with this movie. They wrote it. They starred in it. And uh, I just thought it was absolutely hilarious. It was one of those goofy kind of um, movies that, that, you know, in in line with the other Zucker films. Uh, and, and I just loved it. But a lot of people may not remember it. But you were actually a cheerleader in that movie. Am I correct? I was. You know, it's interesting. That's one of the first things I did. Um, I was a teenager. I was just a kid. And... Um, we worked on that for, I was one of the felon cheerleaders, which are, there was two main teams, the Beers and the Felons, and I was one of the felon cheerleaders, and we worked on that for more than a month, and it's amazing how, what happens in the editing, I think you see me for, you know, briefly, um, but yeah, Trey and Parker were really great guys, they, they actually, um, Trey Parker and Matt Stone, they actually threw a really fun rap party in Venice, thanks guys, um, <laughs> And um, oddly enough, if you, I remember the displays that were in the theaters. It was, um, it would feature the sort of the garage door with the basketball hoop. And then below it on the bottom, I was on all the displays. And I have one of them at home because we actually stole it from the theater and brought it home with us. Um, I was, you know, I'm not very large, but I'm, I'm in the bottom left corner, I believe, in my little leather cheerleading getup and, Instead of pom-poms, we had sort of those leather tasseled whips. Oh, and our chickens were all like um, kind of motorcycle-oriented and really down and dirty and gritty. Oh, how fun. It was, yeah, it was a fun fun one to work on. Um, I, envy, yeah. I envy your life. It sounds amazing. <laughs> Some well, aspects of it are, yes. <laughs> well, do, you, do you mind if I brag on you for a few minutes? Because Please, go ahead. <laughs> I want to express to our fans how lucky we are to have you on the show. Absolutely. But I also want to want to talk about how great of a person you are because I talked about how approachable you are, and the reason I say that is for the for the fans out here who who don't know exactly who you are. Some of them will know you as soon as they see you, but they might not know you by name. But I mean, you've been on the Howard Stern show. You've been on the Late Late Show with James Corden, and and did a bit on there with uh, John Stamos that my wife is so envious of. Oh man, did you get to touch his hair? Everyone's wife and girlfriend is envious of me. Yeah. Oh my gosh, did you touch his hair? And a lot of men are envious of me as well. Well, good, they should be. Did you get to touch John's hair? 
I, I got to touch his hair and his face and his arms. His and his, lips. Yeah, I, oh, my he's God. He's an incredibly nice guy, very professional. Oh, good. Um, good at what he does. Awesome. All right, calm down over there. I'm sorry. So, anyways... <laughs> So, I mean, she's worked with stars like Kevin Pollack, Bill Murray, Christopher Lloyd, James Caan, Sean Astin. I mean, I could probably name 30 more that everybody out there knows who they are. And, you know, not to mention that, and I'm going to get off the subject, when I talked about how versatile she is, I mean, she's had her own swimsuit calendar that's won awards. She's been, you know, voted in magazines on four different continents as one of the sexiest women in the world. There you go, girl. She's been in Esquire, GQ, Maxim, Playboy, a whole bunch of other magazines. And I say that because she reached out to me, said she liked the podcast. She's been on all these huge shows, and she had no problem coming on the show. I didn't have to go through a bunch of publicists or rank things. I talked to her personally, and she couldn't be nicer. I would have had no clue that she is as big time as what she is based on how she comes across because she comes across as just a sincere, regular person. And I appreciate that. I know these fans appreciate it. Yes. Well, that I think you afford me too much, but thank you. I'll take it. Um, my head's going to be so large I won't be able to fit out of the door. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I, I want you to touch on one other thing that really isn't related to any of this, and we're going to get into the paranormal. But I understand you're a huge animal activist and actually give uh, some proceeds uh, to help that cause, so I want I you am. to give a chance to speak about that. I am. It's funny. We're, you know, I, it's, if I could clone myself, I have some items on eBay right now, but we're getting ready to list a ton. And for many of my online sales or the different autograph appearances I'm doing. I know I'm booked for one in the UK coming up in Coventry in the fall, but I diverge. Um, so I donate my proceeds to help animals in need. I, mm-hmm. I am an avid animal rescuer and, you know, rights activist. My house is a revolving door for rescues. Oh, that's um, awesome. And I do, I'll, I'll say it now, but I generally every interview that I do, I really like to end it with a just a plea to everyone, be kind to animals. We're, we're their voices and we're responsible for them. And, you know, the, so many people don't understand how important it is to spay and neuter your pets. I think they don't understand that one un, unneutered pet, how many babies that it can be responsible for. And then those babies have babies and those babies have babies. Mm-hmm. And we have such a population problem with these homeless unwanted animals that end up in shelters or starving on the streets or abused and you know we need to take responsibility and really fix that um so fix your damn pets people especially you guys out there it's amazing to me how how many men and i know the men in my family are the same way think they're somehow doing a disservice specifically to their male pets by fixing them which is the craziest thing possible like by fixing your animals they live longer, healthier lives. They're less likely to try to run away or break out of the yard or chew through the leash because, you know, they're in heat and they can smell females. They um, are less likely, if you have male cats, to spray in your house or to be aggressive. Um, So just do it, people. Fix your pets. And then my last plea on this is if you're looking to get a pet, go to your local shelter or rescue. There's so many wonderful animals that need homes. Adopt, don't shop, and be part of the solution, not the problem. Amen, sister. Yeah. Oh, we just said. took we just took the neighbor's dog because we got tired of him walking around, so we just took him. So. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad to hear that. So let's let's talk paranormal. Um, sure. 
<laughs> the reason that, that we talked initially is because you told me that you had an opportunity through a, through a friend of yours to yes. go on a couple of adventures, and one of them was the Lizzie Borden house. It was. And, and we decided, based on the fact that I told you this just a day or two before, a fan we got up in the Massachusetts area, she said, hey, I think you should do one on the Lizzie Borden house. And I really hadn't thought about it. That's I'd look at that more as a true crime genre and we don't really do a whole lot of true crime but there are some other stuff that's happened in the house afterwards and i thought yes. you know what but if, if i talk to you and her and within a day or two and you both mention this it must be meant to be so um tell me a little bit about what happened when you were at the Borden house that was a really crazy amazing experience i was um i was trying to think where i was coming from i think i just finished actually doing an appearance at chiller theater so it was Late October, the beginning of November, and from there I came into uh, New York, and I was staying in this amazing apartment above the MoMA in New York City, this killer penthouse apartment, and my friend um, Lucky, or Mike Lukowski is his name, he is a paranormal investigator, and so he was coming over, and we were going to hang out, and we were basically like, okay, we can hang out in this kick-ass apartment, and, you know, slide out on the wood floors, look at the view and order food. Or we can get in the car, and it was rainy and stormy, and we can drive into Boston and spend the night in the Lizzie Borden house because he happens to be friends. I, you know, her name is escaping me, the girl, and I'm, I apologize if you're listening and hear this because I've met her, the girl who owns the house. But I was like, hell yeah, let's go stay at the Borden house. So we get in the car. We arrive there. It's about 10 p.m., it's stormy and rainy, and oddly enough, there, there's a police car parked in the parking lot across the street. Not sure why, but they're there. So we unload our stuff, and the most popular room in the house is the guest room, which is where Mrs. Borden was murdered. And that is the only room that's rented out, and so the people who rented the room are already in their sleep. And then the, the, the woman who owns the place, I guess when the rooms are rented, she sleeps downstairs in the second parlor. So her and her friend were down there. And so my friend Lucky, hi Lucky if you're listening, had given me some info on the house. And to my knowledge, there are nine spirits that still reside there. Um, Joseph the ex-con, who was killed in the basement, I guess the police came and shot him down there. And I, I might be off on some of my facts, but this is what I know. So if I'm wrong, forgive me. Um, so the spirit of Mrs. Borden, Mr. Borden, the cat, who I don't remember the name, but that's what I was most interested in, um, the maid, the butler, uh, Lizzie, from what I understand, visits sometime, but she really didn't like the house, and so she's not there all the time. And then there were two kids who lived next door, and... There, I guess there was a well that they shared with the Borden family, and the mother drowned the two kids in the well. And the kids used to come upstairs and play in one of the rooms in the attic. So we get into the house, and the first thing we do is, you know, we're, we get in a tour of the house, and we're walking around, and, you know, Lucky's showing me everything. And I'm just very open. And he, he'd already told me ahead of time, you know, you have nothing to be worried about. If there's anything evil, it's going to come after me, not you. So I was like, okay, cool. So uh, basically we're going from room to room, and 
he said, you know, this is Mrs. Borden's favorite room. So I basically was like, you know, hi, Mrs. Borden. Thank you so much for having us. Your house is beautiful. Um, and was just sort of talking to whoever he said would be, who, who liked to hang out in certain areas as we walked. And But my, my biggest thing is I really wanted to make contact with the cat. So everywhere we walked throughout the house, I was like, here, kitty, kitty, kitty. Here, kitty, kitty, kitty. So we put all of our suitcases and stuff upstairs in the attic because that's where we were going to be staying. And I'll get to more of that in a minute. And so then we go, we head downstairs to the basement. That's where we were going to start our investigation. And so um, if if you guys want to interrupt and interject, please do. No, I'm just letting you go. If not, I'll continue talking. So we go down to the basement and there are sort of like stools that you would sit on in a work, um, you know, the wooden top with the, the metal legs type of thing. Yes. And so, and he had told me ahead of time, um, uh, we were going to start our investigation in the basement. So the first thing we do is put all of our suitcases and luggage upstairs because we're going to be staying in the attic. And I'll get to more of that later. So we head down to the basement and it's dark and rainy and there are these work stools. So... Um, I sit on one of the work stools and I should actually fill you in a little bit. So my friend had said, you know, it's really good if you wear long dangly earrings because the spirits like to move your earrings around and your hair and things like that. So I wore long dangly earrings. And so I'm sitting on the work stool and I'm very open. So, you know, basically I sit down and I I say, hey, and let me say this first. So Joseph, the ex-con, his spirit supposedly resides in the basement. So I, you know, was like, hey, Joseph, what's up? Um, Nice to meet you. It would be really cool if you could come out and say hi. You know, we just left a badass apartment in Manhattan to come and stay here. So come and say hello to us. And then my friend Lucky is very antagonistic. And he's yelling at me and saying all all this stuff, kind of good cop, bad cop. And so we're sitting there. And then all of a sudden, it's very cold around me. And something is sort of pushing my back forward, so I'm kind of rocking back and forth. Like, my legs are being pushed out, and the upper part of my body is being pushed forward. And I know I sound crazy, and I'm, I'm not doing anything. And my hair is kind of moving around in my earrings. And so Lucky starts to ask questions. And I don't remember what Morris code is. Is it one for yes and two for no or vice versa? Yeah, Do you I'm not sure. Know? Well, wh- whatever it is. So he starts to ask him questions. Is this Joseph? And he's tapping... I should know this. It was whatever it was, one or two. And so we were asking him all kinds of questions, and he's replying by tapping on the underside of the stool. It was absolutely crazy. And then it's very cold around me, so we asked him, um, you know, are you hugging her? And he's saying, you know, no, I'm not hugging her. And, you know, I said, ask him, is the cat here? I want to know if the cat's here. And he's like, no, you know, the cat's not down here. And so we kind of went back and forth asking Joseph questions, and that went on, I don't know, for 20 minutes. And the other thing that was pretty crazy about it is, you know, you're sitting there, and for anyone that's experienced this, the room is obviously dark, but you can see, like, the different spirits. It's like they move in the corner. It's like these dark flashes that go really quickly in the corners. Um, And unless you've experienced it, you think I'm crazy, but if you've experienced it, you know what I'm talking about. Right. So from there, we basically walked through the rest of the house. We... So Mr. Borden was killed downstairs in the main parlor, and everyone that was killed, it happened from behind. So all the psychics and investigators that have talked with the spirits, 
and have asked them who killed you, none of them know because none of them saw their killer's face. So there's no concrete evidence that Lily, that, uh, Lizzie actually killed her parents. Maybe she did, maybe she didn't. Um, the other thing that's really interesting and incredibly morbid, you know, this was obviously back in a while ago, but they used to do autopsies on the dining room table back in the old <laughs> yep, days. That's so incredible. all the bodies that were killed there, they autopsied them on the dining room table. How crazy is that? Yeah, that's um, pretty bizarre. <laughs> Ugh. And they and they have a, a new dining room table, so it's not the same one, but it's still creepy. Um, <laughs> so from you know, we walked around the house from here. We went upstairs into the guest. No, we couldn't go into the guest room. Into Mrs. Borden's favorite room, and I'm saying hi to her. This is on the second floor. So then we head up into the attic, and the, as most attics are, you know, it's sort of like the full size door that you kind of pull down and lock. So we get into the attic and. So once you walk upstairs, straight ahead is the maid's room. To the left is the bathroom. You head to the right, and there's sort of like a little parlor in between all the rooms, and there's a couch, and I believe there was a Bible. I know there were some old books. Then on the right of that is the butler's quarters, and then on the far side is the room where the two kids used to play. So um I'm not a scaredy cat, but at the same time, it's a little creepy. It's late at night, and you got to wonder who would pay to stay in, you know what I mean, who's going to pay, because it's, it's not an inexpensive place to stay, you know, it's pricey. And so you got to wonder who would pay to stay here, and are we safe? And I know you're thinking, well, hold on, you guys are staying there. Um, but anyway, so my friend Lucky says, you know, I'm going to take a shower. Or he sets up all of his equipment, and so we post up in the room across all the way across the hall from the bathroom. And that's the room where the two kids used to play. And he says, are you okay here by yourself for a while? while I take a shower. I'm like, yeah, uh, I'm fine. And I wasn't aware that the kids were there or I would have brought them a ball or something because he told me a lot of times you bring them a ball and they move it around the room. Um, so long story short, he's in the shower. I'm laying on the bed and I'm calling the cat and I'm saying hi to the kids and all of a sudden, I feel something very warm and heavy on my belly. And then, you know when a cat like makes, makes biscuits on you? So then it's like this, I felt like something was making biscuits on my chest. It was absolutely crazy. And I'm just talking to the cat, assuming that's what it is. And so that went on for probably five minutes. And then as soon as my friend Lucky came out of the shower, it disappeared. And then a few minutes later, I felt it again, like to the right of me, it was very warm. Um, so he set up his equipment and it, the same thing, you can see all the, and it, it's different than shadows that move from the light reflecting it. When you see spirits in the corners, it's like these dark flashes. I, I can't explain it unless you've witnessed it with your own eyes. So, um, fast forward, I'm laying on the bed and he had told me, um, you know, the, the, the kids like to hang out in this room the most. So. It's been, it takes a little while, and the door was moving in and open, the door of the closet. He said the kids are shy. Oftentimes, they'll hide in the closet, and after a while, they come out. So the door in the closet starts to move, um, and it wasn't windy. There was no logical explanation for it. And he set up his equipment so we can listen for the voices and, you know, monitor, uh, however they monitor. I, I'm not a professional. So next thing you know, I'm, I'm laying there, and it reminded me of my, my niece, when she would lay with me and she would kind of play with my hair and touch my face. And it was, now this was very cold. Like I felt like a little body laying on me and like, 
I can't, like, the, her head and stuff was on the left side, but then, like, her arm was across. I, I can't, ex- I don't know how to explain it, but I felt like there was a child that was laying with me. And so that went on for a while, and then somebody was moving my legs around and stuff. And I, I told my friend Lucky, I'm like, it feels like someone's moving my legs. And he said, oh, you know, the kids like to do that, especially the little boy. Then it felt like someone was touching my butt. And he said, well, I hope that's the kids and not, you know, the butler or Mr. Borden. <laughs> I know. That after a while, he said to me, do you feel any pressure on your neck? And I was like, excuse me? And he said, does it feel like anyone's trying to choke you? And I said, no, why? And he said, you know, sometimes Mr. Borden can be a little bit nasty. And I'm like, oh, great. And I'm like, no, I don't feel any of that. And I'm like, I I really hope that what's going on is the kids and not, you know, Mr. Borden or Joseph the butler perving out on me. Um, Well, when you said said that someone touched your butt, my initial response was going to be the butler did it. (laughs) The <laughs> in the library with the candlestick <laughs> yeah so um it was really cool I mean I felt like I had like I said I was most excited about the cat and the thing that really struck me was when Joseph the con ex-con made contact and what I assume was the two kids the spirits it was very cold like it was it was just an icy cold around me and the, the cat, or what I think was the cat, was very warm. And I'm not crazy. I wasn't drunk. I wasn't on any kind of drugs. I wasn't sleep. I might have been sleep deprived. But I was lucid and competent. And, I mean, this really happened. Um, it's funny, though. Then we were talking later, and he said, you know, would you want to come on? We're going to do a um, an investigation at the Stanley Hotel, which is really where The Shining happened. And, you know, they invited me, and I said, hell yeah, I want to go. And he said, you know, I can't tell you how many people that we train for this, and we'll train them for six months, and then they actually have contact with the real spirit, and they run out of the house screaming. <laughs> I was like, you, you told me there was nothing to be scared of. And in hindsight, that was probably very naive of me, because I'm sure there's plenty of things to be scared of. Yeah, especially at the Stanley Hotel. I mean, we, we did a story on them a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's a fascinating story because, you know, the old, the old, uh, story about Jim Carrey when he stayed there when they were doing Dumb and Dumber, he ran down screaming in the middle of the night that they needed to get him into another room immediately. <laughs> I did not know that. Was he staying in one of the, like, specifically haunted rooms? He stayed in the same room that Stephen King stayed in. I think it was 215. But it was oh, whatever, yeah. whatever the same room that Stephen one King of the stayed in. Rooms, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, well, you know, I didn't make it there. I was actually really excited to go, and my sister was supposed to go with me, and she, I forget what happened. She hurt her back or something, and I I just didn't want to go by myself, so I ended up not going, which I regret, and I, I just love this kind of stuff. Um, I also have been trying to get – I'm originally from um, Pennsylvania, the East Coast, and I really want to get out to the um, – uh, what's it called? The Penn State Penitentiary there. Oh, yeah, I've yeah. Heard incredibly haunted. That's it's on my list to do next time I go back to visit. Very um, cool. Very cool. Yeah. I don't know if that answers your questions or if I have any more, if that made sense. No, but, um, it, it completely answered the question. And and I know you've got a busy schedule going on. I wanted to give you a quick second before we got off here to be able to tell our listeners how they can 
get in touch with you on social media or kind of see some of the stuff you've done, some of your demo reels, uh, websites, or, and uh, maybe plug a few upcoming um, projects you got going on? Yes, I would love it. Everyone follow me on, I'm on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Follow me, send me a little message letting me know you heard it here, and I will follow. I try to follow everyone back. Sometimes it's hard because I sometimes it just gets lost in the masses so if i don't follow you back and you want me to give me a shout out um the best way sort of one-stop shopping is my website which is my name chanelryan.com and if you don't know how to spell that shame on you um it's uh c-h-a-n-e-l-r-y-a-n then dot com and basically if you scroll down to the bottom of any page on the site there is links to all my social media. So it will take you right to my you know, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Um, my reels should also be on the bottom right of the page. Um, my YouTube channel, like everything's there. So it's sort of anything you could possibly want to know, you can find there. What about, do um, you have any, any new projects coming up? Anything going to be released soon that you want to plug? I do. I have a bunch of stuff. Um Let's see. Uh, as far as stuff that's coming out, I'm trying to think what's in the horror genre. I have a really fun comedy horror, which is kind of my, the best of both worlds. It's called Hell's Kitty. And one of the things I love about Hell's Kitty, um, I got involved because the proceeds go to help animals in need. And it was originally shot as a web series. The whole premise is it's based on a, loosely on a true story. Um, it's about a writer named Nick and his cat who um, was very jealous of any females that came into his life and it was making it, in, in real life, making it very hard for him to date. So he just took it to another level and made the cat possessed. And so it's about all the crazy adventures and each episode featured actors who are iconic in the horror genre. So I am in the finale episode, but then from there it was edited into a film. And which will be released soon, so stay tuned for that. And you can find info on that um, on both my website and IMDb. Um, what else? Uh, Circus of the Dead. I know horror fanatics love that. That just came out, so you can see that on VOD and DVD. Um, what else? Oh, you were asking about Hypnotized earlier. Correct. So that, you know, um, the film was originally called Mind Puppet. And they originally changed the title to Hypnotized. Really great cast. Um, Kevin Pollack, John DeLacy, Vinnie Jones. Uh, we filmed it in New Orleans. I have a, a small part. I, was, I shot for two days. Um, and I actually, my scenes are with Yvonne Zima and Christopher Von Uckerman, who is just huge in the Latin American market and one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. Um, that's a really fun zany comedy, so look for that. Um, I don't know what else I can tell you. I know I have other stuff coming out, and it, this is awful, but I've just been working nonstop, and I can't remember. That's um, okay. That's, that's what happens uh, when you're busy uh, and you're popular. Ready to, it's interesting. I have, I'm in negotiations right now for a couple really big things, which I'm not allowed to discuss yet, and I'm crossing my fingers that go through and will be announced you know, within the next month or so. Um, but in the meantime, I am working on a really fun, it's a horror film called Mayday from director Max Searchy. Um, and it has two endings. One of them is a horror ending 
and the other is a sci-fi ending. So basically the viewers can choose which ending they want. And the little bit that I can tell you about it without giving the plot away, the whole thing takes place on an airplane. And a few hours after takeoff, uh, sorry, a few minutes after takeoff, the lights go out and the passengers start disappearing. And um, I play one of the stewardesses and you're just going to have to watch it to find out what happens. That's kind of all I can say on that. It sounds um, good. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure I've got some, I, I, you know, I'm booked for leads in, I think, three or four indie films coming up. And I'm really not allowed to talk about any of the others yet without giving stuff away. But um, stay tuned. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you again. And I know Tracy wants to say thank you. Thank you so much. And we've really enjoyed having you. And um, sounds like you're doing great. And we wish you the best of luck in everything else you do, hon. Yep. Thank, thank you. you very much. Thank yeah, you. it was great being on. I appreciate it. Thank you, honey. So like I said, thank you for, for uh, being so kind and giving us some of your time. I mean, you know, one minute you're talking to Stern and performing with, you know, actors like Kevin Pollack. Next thing you're talking to a couple of hillbillies from Kentucky about <laughs> ghosts in the Lizzie Borden house. And, uh, <laughs> we greatly thank you and we're, we'll turn everybody on to you i know you've you've made a couple of uh, fans here for life we greatly appreciate it and uh, hopefully we'll get you on in the future to talk about some of your other paranormal experiences yeah i would love it and once again th- i love your show so i really appreciate you having me on thank you so much thank you chanel we'll see you in the future thank right. you best of luck to you guys bye all right and Thanks again to Chanel for granting us that interview. We greatly appreciate it. Uh, go to our Facebook page, and uh, you can see a bunch of links to uh, her IMDb page, her Twitter, her Instagram, her actual website, and some YouTube stuff. And I'm sure she would greatly appreciate it. I told her I would include all those on the website, so go check it out for us. And we wanted to thank every one of you guys. The, the listens just get more and more every single week, so you're obviously telling your friends. We greatly appreciate it. Yeah, we feel really blessed that you guys are supporting us, and we appreciate it, and uh, hopefully you'll just keep on supporting us. Yep, and we had some people that supported us financially with some donations over the past week and and some T-shirts that they bought. We greatly appreciate that. If you want to send a couple of dollars our way or buy a T-shirt, go to our website, www.hibbillyhorrorstories.com. And uh, I think you'll enjoy what we got. We keep If you get a T-shirt, we put your picture up on our Twitter and our Instagram and our Facebook pages. So we got a couple more of those that will be coming in this week. And uh, like I said, we greatly appreciate it. I want to do a couple of shout-outs this week. Uh, some of these people I probably should have done, which I could always do more every week. But you guys are coming along quicker than what we can say your name, so we greatly appreciate it. But the first one I want to do is Tim Mays. This is a long time coming. Tim's very active on our facebook page he's from uh, grand rapids michigan and we greatly appreciate it tim ninja sends his uh, regards by the way uh, that's his way of saying that the uh the detroit tigers suck this year but you know what are you going to do and then we want to give monty reed uh, a shout out he's from uh, right in our neck of the woods nicholasville kentucky thanks monty for listening i know he's been he sent us a message saying he's been binge listening and the worst part about that is when you're caught up now you got to wait for the new episode so <laughs> thank you guys so much that's that's amazing yep. kathy newell she sent us a message just uh, earlier today she actually lives in california thanks kathy we appreciate yes, it thank you and Jason Montgomery, I just talked to Jason a little bit ago. He's actually from Bardstown, Kentucky. He's from Louisville, but uh, we won't hold that against him. I'm from Louisville myself, so. But we appreciate you listening, Jason. You're living out in Bardstown now. My sister lives out that way. And Katie Jacobs, who lives in England, 
And we appreciate you. I've got a chance to talk to you a few times this week, and you're a sweetheart. And you actually did a show introduction for us, so we'll be doing uh, yours here coming up soon. Got some good things happening uh, coming up in, in the near future. We are going to be have in a couple of weeks, we're going to be doing uh, Rendlesham Forest, which is an awesome UFO story, which I'm not really into UFO stories, but this is one that, that I want to cover because it's got a lot of twists and turns and probably more evidence than, than anything since the uh, the whole Roswell deal. And the guys from uh, uh, Grimsby, England at uh, Don't Break the Oath podcast are actually going to do a segment with us so where we'll do our story, then they're going to set in and we're going to talk about it all together. So I, since this is an English situation and we like those guys, I thought it would be kind of cool to give you guys not an interview, but a, a joint session talking about the same same project. And we're going to do that in the future also with the uh, the young ladies from and that's why we drink so yeah we're very excited about this too so that's uh, a lot of fun yeah if you haven't listened to either one of these podcasts that's going to be the week after easter when we do that if you haven't listened to them go listen to uh don't break the oath and uh, listen to and that's why we drank those are two great podcasts that are two of our favorites and i think you'll enjoy both of them but Thank you guys so much. Uh, we greatly appreciate it. Hit me up on Twitter. It's Hillbilly Horror. And uh, you know, Instagram, we're on there, Hillbilly Horror Stories. we got a YouTube page. We don't do a whole lot on the YouTube page. But hit us up on all that stuff. And, uh, hey, if you want to send Chanel Ryan uh, a tweet, uh, she's really big on Twitter, send her a tweet just telling her you enjoyed her interview and thank her for coming on the show. We greatly appreciate it. It helps us get guests in the future if uh, you guys are showing your gratitude to them. So thank yeah, you so absolutely. much. And we will see you guys next week, and it'll be a surprise for what the show is because I've completely forgotten already. So <laughs> I hammer these shows out literally four, five, six at a time, and, and then I forget when it gets closer because I get so caught up in the story. But uh, I, I guarantee it'll be a good show because uh, anything I put together is something I'm excited to do, and Tracy's just the same way. Yeah, I am, and we uh, really appreciate it again, you guys, and we hope you all have a great week, and um, just remember to love one another. All right. See you guys later. Bye.